0: As you are being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's word and join me in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the story of the visit of the wise men, a story that we are no doubt familiar with but a story that has quite a challenge and an encouragement for us as we look at this Advent season together. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you today, Norwood. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's now ask the Holy Spirit's help as we look at this text together. Oh God, we are a people who often can't see what's right in front of us, as indeed we see these people here in this passage, except for the wise men couldn't see what was right in front of them. So I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would send us a guiding light as we look into this passage, and that we could see you today. Help me to preach your word accurately and well. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody loves a person or an idea or a task or a hobby until it demands something of them most of the time. A lot of people love the idea of playing the piano. But when we find out we have to practice every day, that it demands of us our time and our effort, most of us simply don't love the piano quite that much. People love the idea of being athletic, being able to sprint with the best of them until they find out that this requires sprinting and exercise and commitment. And people love the idea of Jesus. They love the idea of redemption and eternal love. But the idea of obedience and the fact that he is a king sometimes strikes a little harder than we would like. I think part of that is not just because we are rebellious sinners, although that's a big part of it, I think. I think another part is, is that we don't really understand what it means for Jesus to be a king. We know what it's like for other people to be a king for elected officials to have authority over us. We can look, especially recently, as we see all of these things that we have been asked to do, we can bristle on them, rules that don't make sense, things that seem arbitrary, or when looking back in retrospect, find out we're wrong. And so the idea of submitting our entire lives to Jesus, following his every agenda, seems silly or difficult, because at the end of the day, it's hard to trust that he has the best of our intentions in mind. And what we're going to see as we look into this passage today, that the Lord does indeed call for our obedience. There's a reason why we call him the Lord. But as we'll go through, we'll see that this obedience is indeed for our best. And that he indeed loves us so deeply. And I hope that we'll see that in this passage today. We're going to look to our two points. As usual, you can see in your outline. Jesus is the anticipated king that we are called to bow to in worship. Jesus is the anticipated king that we are called to bow to in worship. And then our second point, that worship of Jesus requires a joyful sacrifice and obedience to him. And I hope that these will be clear as we look at this passage today. So first, Jesus is the anticipated king that we are called to bow to in worship. Matthew is setting the scene for us. If we, as we recall from last time when we looked at the announcement of Jesus's conception that Mary is pregnant, and we saw how the Lord was sovereignly working through all of those details to bring Mary and Joseph together, as well as setting up all the events of world history in order to make that happen. And we're going to see similar themes as we look through this passage, similar notes of providence and God's care as we look through this passage. And we're now seeing what happened after the birth what happened after the night in the manger and we're describing these things here in Matthew 1 or Matthew 2 verse 1 it seems although we can't be for we can't be sure but there has been some length of time that has passed probably 1 to 2 years probably because that's As we'll see in the the next passage, this is the time frame that Herod sets to try to get rid of this king that we're going to see. And here they are in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph, and they are greeted with surprise visitors. It says here that the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, who are these wise men? Depending on what translation you have, you may see that rendered magi. What are these people? Who are, who are magi? Well, these folks would have been men of the priestly class, according to scholars, likely coming from some country in Arabia. These would have been astrologers, people that looked to the heavens to determine their fate and their destinies, hoping to find some answers in the sky as to what God would intend for the future. And that's what these men are doing. They're called wise men because they are wise, supposedly, by looking into the heavens and trying to chart a course forward. And this may be confusing for us who are on this side to say, it's like, okay, well, God uses a star to guide these people. Is this God giving a tacit approval to astrology? Is God giving us approval to look through our horoscopes and try to find out what we're supposed to do today? No. This is not what this is calling for. We are told over and over again that we're not to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. But that God has, as one scholar put it, has met the wise men where they are and has been guiding them to his son. One other commentator noted that even the star was not enough to tell them about Jesus. It just told them where they could find him. They needed more. A star could get them some part of the way, but they couldn't understand who Jesus was until they had an encounter with him. Same's true for us, by the way. If we look out into the world, we can see a lot of things that it can teach us about God. We can see he's obviously a very creative being to make all the variety and beauty that we see. He's obviously very detail-oriented as we can seemingly look further and further down and down and down and never really seem to get to the end of activity or life. I remember once I was in a biology class and he had us, our teacher gave us a little vial of pond water that looked clear, but when you put it under the microscope, it was a whole civilization that was living in there, which did nothing to help my germophobia at the time. But I was impressed to see the level of life that God has created for us to discover, both at the micro and at the macro level. But yet, as beautiful as all of those things are, and as much as that they can tell, I can't tell that I am a sinner and need to repent and put my faith in Christ by seeing a protozoa on a slide. I need to come to Christ myself. That's what the wise men are here doing. So they've come into Jerusalem looking for the king. It's a natural place to go. It is the capital of Judea after all. So you'd figure there's probably a king there and this is where he's going to be born. So they come and they're asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now let's pause here for a second. They've come to worship. The word that Matthew uses there in Other Greek literature can mean just a simple honor. You want to pay homage to a king or to another person uh, who is a dignitary. But in the way the New Testament uses it, this word is used exclusively for the worship of God. These wise men, astrologers, Gentiles, have come to go to church, they've not come to do something nice for a baby. They've come to worship God. This is a very big task that they are a part of and are calling him the king. There's just one problem, though, for Jerusalem. They already have a king. There's already a king of the Jews, and his name is Herod. And Herod is not a good king. Herod, according to historical scholars, was a very paranoid and awful person who wanted to hold on to his authority by whatever means necessary, including the murder of his own wife and son in order to hold on to his power. So the idea of someone coming in here and saying that there is a new king that's been born in town, Herod is not going to take that lying down. Furthermore, Herod is not a Jew. So to have someone who has been born of the Jews and is called king of the Jews and recognized by that by some foreign country, this is a severe challenge to his power. So considering his personal history, one is pretty easy to imagine why all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. This word troubled is, a, is the same word that's used of the emotions that the disciples felt when they were in the middle of the storm. This isn't just slightly bothered. This is incredibly stressed and all of Jerusalem with him. Why exactly Jerusalem is troubled, it's hard to know whether they were just afraid of his antics, what he might do, as one scholar put it, or whether they were afraid of having their own loyalty to Herod tested. He might not have been a good king, but at least he was a king. And staying close to an authority figure can sometimes be helpful. Here, having this Messiah come up at this really inconvenient time is challenging where people's real loyalties lie. In any case, Herod does have one thing going for him, though. And he does have one thing that he recognizes that maybe the rest of us don't. Herod recognizes, at the very least, that this is a legitimate king that challenges his own rule of his life. Something we do well to reflect on. We don't look like Jesus that way, as someone who truly has the authority, the legitimacy to call the shots and set the agenda of our own lives. Herod recognizes that. There can't be two people on the same throne, only one can be king. Herod recognizes that. And he must act accordingly. He has two choices, either submit and give up his throne, which that's not happening, or to try to get rid of this king. It's exactly what he does. It's a strange thing when we have a feeling of authority descend over us. Have you all ever been driving down the highway and suddenly a police car pulls out from the bushes behind you? It's an immediate recognition of authority, even if you're doing the right thing. It's so the recognition that there is someone behind you that can call the shots. And all of a sudden, we're making sure we've got our steering wheel gripped properly, our seat belt arranged neatly, and are pulling down the speed just a little bit to try to come into conformity with someone that we know has an authority in our lives. So Herod and Jerusalem have to make a decision about Jesus, and so do we. But they need some information first. They want to really confirm who this is and where he's born. Because he was not born in Jerusalem. He wasn't born in a palace. Instead, he was born somewhere else in order to fulfill the scripture that we're about to see. So here Herod assembles the chief priests and the scribes, the scholars of their day, to figure out where the Christ, the Messiah, was supposed to be born. Notice that they know. Verse 5 says, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And here they quote, there's two passages that they're quoting from here, Micah 5.2, which makes up the majority of this quote. And then the last line, who will shepherd my people Israel, comes from 2 Samuel 5.2. And it says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd My people, Israel, they know where the Messiah is supposed to be. So why are they here? Why aren't they there? Scripture doesn't say why. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we can read in our own hesitancies for why we wouldn't pursue after Christ. Maybe it's because they wanted to stay in good with Herod, had political reasons for doing that. What it would cost them personally to be associated with this Messiah. Or maybe they were taking a wait and see approach. Make sure this Messiah is actually going to benefit them first before they throw in their lot with him. Maybe they can observe him from a distance and make a calculation from there. Whatever the reasons are, they stay here in the court. And instead, Herod comes and sends out these wise men to go and find this child for him. As one commentator points out, he really can't send soldiers with him. That would put people on too high of alert. He can't come himself because that would also be suspicious. So he sends the wise men to go and find these people who are in Bethlehem. And giving the false reason is because he wants to worship them too. (laughs) No, wants to try to kill him. So he sends the wise men on their way. I always like here in verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, gives you this idea as to who who is in charge, really. Herod might be in charge of the wise men, but it's God who guides them with a star. It's God who has led all of his people up to this point for Mary and Joseph to be in this city in the first place. All because of some tax law shows that God can use anything to bring his people to his place. So, here in verse 9, this begins our taking a look at our second point that worship of Jesus requires joyful sacrifice and obedience to him. That's what these wise men do. Verse 9 After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. Exceedingly, with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Here, the wise men are seeking out this king of the Jews to find and worship him. And it's interesting; they have the city they know is supposed to be Bethlehem. Bethlehem wouldn't have been a a huge city to search. But I know if I would have thought that I was, if I was on the wise men's sandals as I was journeying out of Jerusalem and into Bethlehem, I would have figured, well, this is the king of the Jews. They've got it written down as to where this child is supposed to be. We can see a star in the heavens saying, uh, uh, announcing this. So surely we'll just go into Bethlehem and we'll just look for the house that has the big crowd in front of it. Surely the people will be very excited to see their Messiah. And we'll just find that. But there is no crowd. There's no one trying to press in to find this Jesus. and They have to be guided there by a star and shown where this Christ is. This is a blinding indictment towards the Jewish people. Those who have been waiting for their Messiah. When he comes, they don't see him. And this is just a blinding indictment to us. When we who have been raised in the church, for those of us who have heard God's word or or people who have been trained and have gone to seminary to hear God's word and don't gather around to submit ourselves to it. That the word is right here, but how often do we leave it behind? That prayer is in our closet, but we refuse to stop. This has been something that's been really challenging to me lately. So I've been thinking about the areas of my life that still need fuller surrender to Christ. And I think, what would I have been like if I was one of Jesus' neighbors there in Bethlehem? Would I have bothered to go and see? My own hesitation to do this in my own life today tells me what that answer would be. So instead, the wise men, the people from afar, the Gentiles... They show us what our attitude should be like and what obedience to Jesus and submission to his lordship looks like. It says, when they saw the star, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. These are words over and over again telling how great their joy was, really highlighting this. This isn't something where they just said, oh, finally, after all these miles, we're finally got to the point we're supposed to be. Let's drop this gold off and go. These people are very excited to be in the presence of the king. To come and to worship Christ. And they do so with great sacrifice. These gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh are gifts for a king. And are quite expensive. To be sacrificed for him. Here they go and they worship him. And of course, after they to worship, they have been told by the lowercase k, king of the Jews, to come back and report. But instead, they have been told by the uppercase king instead to go another way and return to their country and don't go back to Herod. Of course, they listen and are, go back to their country another way and Herod is not informed, once again, the providence of the Lord at work. So this leaves us with a real challenge, doesn't it? What does our own obedience look like? And as I said earlier, that this is joyful, sacrificial obedience. Why do I say these particular things? Well, let's break this down. The first one is joyful As we remember from a few weeks ago, and we were looking at Philippians 4, we defined from one of our uh, commentators what joy was. It says that joy arises from a quiet hope and confidence that the Lord of life will turn affliction into deliverance. Joy in the Lord is not a feeling, but an attitude. Again, this is a critical thing for us to remember. This is not feeling. This isn't calling for us to be happy all of the time. But it does call for a quiet confidence that the Lord is working and is doing good things. I actually went back and forth about whether or not to include this word in this examination of our obedience. Because I didn't want to paint the picture that we are always smiling as we obey. Sometimes we go through obedience with tears because sometimes God asks us to do incredibly hard things. God asks us to one day say goodbye to our parents or one day say goodbye to our children or say goodbye to abilities that we once had and have no more. Obedience can be very, very difficult doesn't mean that it's harmful, but it does mean that it's difficult. But unless you have this quiet confidence that the Lord will work all things out for your good and for his glory, you will not obey. When we are called to forgive someone, if we think that Jesus doesn't have our best interests in mind, we won't when we're called to give up portions of our free time for the word and prayer and evangelism, unless we have a joyful confidence that the Lord is going to work those things out, we won't. These wise men settled, set out across deserts to find this king. That's confidence. And it's confidence that we should have All they had was word that a child was born. We have word that a man died and rose again for us. The ultimate painting of how good he is to us, that he would sacrifice his own life so that we could be freed from our sin. It's what it means to have joy. It's what gives us the power to obey. It's confidence in the goodness of the Lord. Confidence that as a king, he will not only command us, but care for us. As the shorter catechism defines it, that he will subject us to himself and also defend us. He is a good king. And once this is grasped, And only when this is grasped will we be able to move to the second part, which I make mention of, which is sacrificial obedience. Usually when we use the term in church, sacrificial obedience or sacrificial giving, we usually refer to this in some sort of financial means. An end of the year push to get our missions budget going or something like that. This is not to denigrate one-time generous donations of finances. That's a good thing. But what Jesus is really after are the small things in our lives. If Jesus is going to be king, he doesn't get to be king just of the big decisions in your life. Because that's not really where your life is lived. You make over the course of your life four or five really large decisions in your life what to do for a living, who to marry, where you live, what children you have, those sorts of things. But Jesus doesn't just show up five times in your life and say, here's how you're supposed to do these things. Here's where you go to school. No, Jesus tells you how you're going to go to school. Every day when you wake up, what it is that Christ has for you to do in those classes and in those books. It's the same thing. Jesus doesn't tell you just when to retire, but how to live in retirement. What does that look like day to day? Because that's where your life is really lived. Yes, those big decisions shape your life, but they, can, but they don't have to define it. More often, we are defined by those 10,000 little decisions that we make of every single day. When we think about... Our diets, our bodies are not the shape that they are because of one weekend at a buffet or one weekend in the gym. But it's those daily decisions of what activities we do and what we put into our mouths that determines what our bodies look like. And the same is true of our souls. If we're having trouble, having joy in Christ, might it be that we're ignoring what it is that he's called us to do? And that we've not had him be the authority in all the micro decisions in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us that whatever you do, even down to our eating and drinking, most mundane stuff you have to do just to survive, is done for the glory of God. How does this, what does this mean practically? How do we do that? Well, it's every day as we think through, what is it that I have to do today? The next question is, how can I do it to God's glory? This doesn't mean that everyone has to go into professional ministry. But what this does mean is whether you are a policeman or a plumber or a doctor or even a lawyer, you do those things to God's glory. You do it to the best that you can not to make money, not to make a name for yourself, not so people will think highly of you in the community, But so that when people look at Christians, they think, oh, I know a Christian. I was the guy that built my deck. He did a really great job. He really put in the effort to make this as best as he could. This is what it means to live for God. Or in class, we don't think, we don't have professors tell us, oh, yes, I know all about Christians. They're the ones that don't study. That's not the reputation we want to leave. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're representatives for Jesus. And how we conduct ourselves in the world reflects on him. That's what it means when we say we do all of these things to the glory of God. And not just the stuff that's out there publicly, but also the stuff that we do when no one's watching. Those little moments when we're just, want the kids to just go to bed. And the family devotions, we can skip it tonight so we can just get them to sleep. I've felt that. And I've failed in that. But it's those moments where we need to say, is Christ king of my life or not? What is it that he would have me do in this moment? And sometimes those moments can feel like a far bigger sacrifice than a big end of the year financial push. If only we could just write a check and be done. No, it's giving up of our time, of our energy. That's where Jesus really has authority. And what it really means to be under his rulership. We're very quick when we are thinking about what we want to do with our lives We're very quick to poll the opinions of others to see how and why we should do it. First place most of us go when we have a problem is to Google. Poll the collective wisdom of the internet to figure out where it is that we should go, what we should buy, and how we should spend our time. I remember one of my seminary colleagues had told me, it's like we should run to God before we run to Google. When we're looking up baseball teams for our children to join should we consult what it is that what god would have us to do with this baseball team or how does this fit into our schedule so that we can always make sure we have time to worship god when we think about what school we go to or where we want to live or who we marry all of these things need to be informed by what god would have us to do with that and that should be the first item of importance Of course, I know as I can hear these things or even say these things myself, there's a little part of me that gets afraid. Like, Well, what what would God have me do? I was to really let him have control. What might he tell me where to live? What might I have to give up? How might this hurt me? It's a real sad way of looking at God, isn't it? that if I was to let him have control of my life, that he would just make me miserable. It's a terrible way to look at it. Doesn't mean it won't be hard, but I can tell you that it will be worth it. That God is such a wonderful king that he doesn't come to his subjects to to subdue them and subject them in oppression. He's not like the ancient pharaohs that would just use these people like a tool to build a great pyramid for himself. But that as he is building this kingdom that it is the best for his people as well. That he is doing something for us even though it's painful and even if we can't see the end result. We can look at the cross And we can see that's the one who's giving me the order. The one who bled and died for me. The one who left his father's throne to live in my skin. To live the life that I should have lived and died the death that I deserve to die. That's the one who's telling you to trust. So, what happens? as we think through the takeaways of this passage and what this means for our life, how we supposed to live this. Well, I think the first step is we come to God and we ask where are our lives out of balance? And when you find that area that's out, not if, there are all places that we need more surrender When we find those places, we come to God and ask for his help because we can't even obey on our own. We need Jesus to come and empower our hearts to be able to do this. Spend time in his word to find out what it is that he would have us to do and spend time with him in prayer so that we could have the power so to do it. Again, not just to... Doing this just to obey yet another set of irrational orders that we don't understand. These are things that he calls us to do because he loves us. It's difficult to understand. A lot of times, difficult to understand. But we know that he is good. And if I can suggest one practical thing, if you do this, and I would encourage you to do so. To make those sacrificial obedient choices, whatever it is that you might be withholding this year. I want you to record down what it is that you were thinking right before you were making this decision to turn this over to him. And then revisit it in six months and see if those things that you feared didn't actually turn out for your good. And keep doing this. Do this with your prayers Say, here's my request, and here is how he answered it. Doing this over the course of years will show us and show you personally that he is working in your life. And as you look towards this new year of 2022, and as many of us make resolutions, maybe make this one. Step out in faith. Step out in sacrificial obedience. And I would challenge you that when we return to Advent season next year, should the Lord tarry, that you would find that he has done wondrous things for you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for being a king that not only commands, but cares, that watches over us that uses your power for our good and our provision. So I ask for all of us, as we might be challenged to hard things this year, that we would submit to you in our joy, even through tears, to say, Lord, we trust you. You are our king, and we obey Help us to do this from love as people who have been loved. And may us most of all go out into the world to reach out to those who haven't heard of this king yet and give them the same offer of forgiveness of sins that has been extended to us. And may we do so with joy. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.